Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Jack Burns. Jack Burns is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and served seven years as an officer in the Marines. He left active duty in 2021 and is currently pursuing an MBA at Georgetown. He has a very interesting substack where he posts about financial topics that interest him. He's also designed a very interesting asset allocation for his own funds. And I'd like to talk to him about that today. So welcome to the podcast, Jack. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I, uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast and your Substack. Found you on Twitter, so looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. So how did you first get started? How did your interest begin in investing? Yeah, so this would this will probably be kind of years and years ago. I grew up in a small town in Connecticut, and my mom was kind of all, always running all around town and would routinely just drop my siblings and I, I'm the oldest of four, and would just drop us in the library <laughs> and just let us run around in there. And I just always loved reading. And one day I came upon a book on investing, Common Sense on, on Mutual Funds by Jack Bogle. I read it. It was one of those things I just read it so quickly. It just, like, I couldn't put it down. Great and starting point. Seriously. Yeah. I couldn't have been more lucky. I could have come up across something, something way worse for sure. But yeah. And that was really what spurred my interest in investing. I think, you know, I really do think I was incredibly lucky to have that sort of educational foundation in investing. And that kind of laid the groundwork. And from there, that was kind of early in my high school years. And I've been pursuing, you know, reading and learning about it and investing my own money ever since. And uh, it's been a great journey. I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. So if Jack Bogle was a major influence on you, what are some of the chief lessons that you've drawn from him? Yeah, you know, I think if I can distill it in one sentence, I'd probably say that you generally want it to, to index and you generally want to keep your fees low. I think that's probably that's probably it, really. You know, obviously with what all the work that they've done at Vanguard to bring low-cost indexing to retail investors has really changed the way retail investors can invest and made, you know, so in, instead of chasing some crazy active mutual fund manager with some ridiculous fees associated. Some retail investor that just wants to save for retirement can do so, you know, in, in a way that actually makes sense. I think that's such an amazing thing. And, you know, his contributions, you know, he's got to be on the Mount Rushmore for investors, I think. Yeah, 100%. I think that he's designed one of the most rational ways to invest. If you look at the data and kind of the failures of active management. I'm a stock picker at heart, but I'm fully admit that the data is pretty overwhelming that it probably makes more sense to to index. I recently looked at the I think S&P puts out, you know, like the failure of active management chart and it's just it's overwhelming. Really. It's like the inconvenient truth of investing, so. Yeah, and I mean, you look at that like the Spiva data, basically, I think year 1 50, 60% of active managers will underperform. And then by the time you're out 10, 20 years, you're at like 90, 95% have failed to, to beat the index. And then you even look at like the hedge funds and the Buffett bet where 
it wasn't only that they underperformed the market, their average return was 3% over 10 years net of fees. So yeah, it seems, and then just based on my own experiences with the difficulties in trying to pick stocks and predict macro and do all the cool stuff that we that we love to talk about, it just seems, yeah, pretty obvious that it's a tough game to play. Yeah, for sure. You know, I still I still love it. And like, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about later in this conversation, like I love the process of investing. I love having skin in the game, but I'm also you know, I think that book helped set the foundation of, you know, I don't have any sort of misunderstanding that I have some, you know, unique ability to, (laughs) to outperform the market or something. I I think uh, just uh, embracing diversification is something that, that I've come to that I think maybe Bogle didn't emphasize perhaps enough, but still the foundation of what he preached was, is really more than enough for almost everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he's just done a tremendous service to investors. I mean, before him, people were doing things like paying, you know, 5% sales load. It was just really, really an ugly place for the average investor. And Vanguard has really led the charge to reform all that and and give people good products at low fees. And uh, yeah, I don't know where we'd be today without him. Yeah. So Jack Bogle's a major influence. Who are some other uh, major influences on you? Yes. After I read Common Sense on Mutual Funds, I really only invested, you know, I invested in, in VOO, the, uh, the S&P fund that Vanguard puts out. And I invested in that fund for probably the next almost 10 years, eight to 10 years or something like that. And, but the next big player in investing that I came across was Ray Dahlia. And that was because uh, I have a cousin that I'm very close with that that actually worked at Bridgewater. And he and I would often talk about investing and he essentially inspired me to look into it. And I started reading about him and how he thought about diversification and how he thought about combining different asset classes. And that really made so much sense to me also. And I really thought that there were ways to combine how Dalio was preaching combining, you know, the holy grail of combining, you know, uncorrelated asset classes so that you can have, you can create essentially a more robust portfolio to different economic environments. And that's something that I think that most people don't, especially nowadays, you know, after the kind of the, the last 13 years that we've experienced, most people don't really appreciate. And they're taking a lot of unintended bets in their portfolios. So Dahlia was really the person that, you know, growth and inflation are really the drivers of, of returns. Different asset classes have different biases to these sort of macroeconomic environments and combining them in such a way that you can bring the portfolio into balance so that you can be indifferent to how the macroeconomic environment transpires. So that's really what I took from him. And that's really when I began to, to start to diversify past just the the basic index funds. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think that's a very logical evolution from, you know, pure bogglehead to more of the risk parity style. It's, it's almost like a graduation. Like a lot of times when you talk to the boggleheads, like basically they're talking about combining an all stock fund with an all bond fund. Yeah, that's not really optimal, especially just market cap weighting bonds, I don't think makes a lot of sense. So yeah, I, I think that's a very logical approach. And 
Dalio's work had a pretty similar influence on me when I realized, hey, you don't necessarily have to have a 50% drawdown and just deal with that, you know, investing in all stocks. Like there is an alternative. You might give up a little bit in returns, but not much, in my opinion, for what you're gaining in the reduced volatility and drawdowns. I, I totally agree. And, you know, I think the biggest risk to, to like the vast majority of investors is behavioral. It's like, you know, we've found the enemy and the, the enemy's inside the gates. Like it's us. And to take a 50% drawdown, which is essentially inevitable over any like two decade sort of, you know, time period. hundred percent or worse. Yeah. It could be way, way worse. You know, it's just not, to me, that's not acceptable. <laughs> so I think that you just have to diversify. You have to diversify away from that. You want to just, I think the goal is to just compound capital consistently over time. You don't need to hit the ball out of the ballpark every year, but you just don't want to take any sort of fatal blows. I don't know if you're familiar with Jason Buck and Corey Hofstein from Twitter. I really respect those guys and I consume pretty much all of their content. And Jason was saying that people tend to look at their portfolio as investments as opposed to as saving. Because in reality, what it is, all of our investment portfolios, they are our savings for the, the future. But when you frame it as, these are my investments, many people think of it as you know, I need to get, I need to get rich off of these things. Like I need to, you know, I need to produce X returns so that I can be rich. But in reality, it's just, I just need to steadily compound my, my capital so that I can grow my savings over time and support whatever future goals I have. Now, of course, you know, some people's goals might, might be different than mine, but of course, but, but that's really how I view it. Yeah. And even boring low Kagers over a long period of time still result in people getting rich. So you don't necessarily have to, you know, swing for the fences. You can get that slow and steady over a few decades. And then I think you'll make out just fine. No, I totally agree. And I, and I see kind of, I've seen uh, your ETF allocation and how it's kind of, it's your unique spin on it, but it seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, but inspired by the permanent portfolio. Is that? Yeah, that's, that's a hundred percent right. I basically took the permanent portfolio made it internationally diversified, pivoted it towards small cap value, added in real estate as like another kind of real asset for inflation. And then I didn't want to have such a huge cash allocation. Like I have, I have my own cash. I have an emergency fund, which basically covers a year of expenses. And I don't think I need anything outside of that. So yeah, that's how I designed my, my personal allocation. I love that. And I really think whether it's your spin on the permanent portfolio or the actual permanent portfolio itself, that portfolio, the simplicity of it and the low fee nature in which you can implement that portfolio is very aligned with Bogle. And it's also very aligned with Dahlia in that it covers all economic environments. You're not predicting which one's going to transpire. You can just be durable throughout whatever, whatever happens. So I think that portfolio, the permanent portfolio would be better than a 60-40 portfolio, but most people would scoff at the notion of holding, you know, that level of gold or that level of cash or or long, even like long duration bonds, people would, most people I feel like would scoff at that. But yeah. Yeah, 100%. I think the permanent portfolio is a good approach. It'll definitely, I think, treat people fine over the long run. And yeah, I agree. It has a little bit too much long-term treasuries, a little too much gold. But yeah, the key thing for me, I always thought, uh, when I was younger, that macro was something that was predictable. And then slowly over like 
20 years, I've gradually become less and less convinced that anyone has any ability to predict macroeconomic outcomes. And then finally, I completely gave up on it. I'm like, there's just no way any of this. You can't predict recessions. You can't predict bear markets. You can't predict inflation. Everybody comes up with some convincing narrative after one of these things happens for why it happened, but very few can predict it ahead of time. And even those who successfully make macro calls, they can never seem to repeat the performance, which just solidifies my point of view that it's all completely unpredictable and you need an approach that doesn't rely on predicting the future. Yeah, totally agree. You know, like the people that predicted 08 are still on, you know, CNBC with the, like the, their name and then under it, the person that predicted the great financial crisis. It's like, yeah, they've probably been out of the market for the last 10 years. And I wonder how that's, how that's gone for them. But yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it turns out a lot of them were stopped clocks and they called a 50% drawdown. But to say, hey, there's going to be a 50% drawdown, like I'm here to tell you, yeah, at some point in the next 20 years, you'll have a 50% drawdown. I don't know when that's going to happen, but that doesn't make me Nostradamus to tell you that something like that is going to happen. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's just a reliable strategy to claim that you can predict the future. And there's so many things that seem obvious that just don't happen. Like I thought, you know, for instance, when QE was happening in 08, 09, 2010, I was convinced that inflation was eventually going to tick up and it never happened. And that's just one of the predictions I've gotten wrong. But yeah, I just don't think there's a robust way to do it. The world is so complicated that I don't think you can really do that. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought that home builders are doing so well recently with the, the recession that everyone's predicted so far in, in advance, but you know. You just never know with these things. Yeah, I mean, that's a great example. I mean, earlier this year, everybody was telling you, hey, we're going to have this nasty recession. Look at how bad the yield curve is inverted. Look at how high rates have come up. It's inevitable. You're going to have a recession. You want to get away from cyclicals. You want to get into more defensive stocks. And uh, the way that the year has been going, it seems like the complete opposite of that prediction has been (laughs) happening, which is usually how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about your actual all-weather strategy. So here's what I have as the component. You can correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong, but I'm showing it as 62% equity, 50% trend following, 22% bonds, 1% gold. You use funds that use leverage and the total exposure is 135%. So do you want to explain a little bit the rationale behind those allocations? Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, you you were just about spot on with that. So kind of to go back to what we're saying, right? I think I am just of the view, and this is stolen from Mike Philbrick of Fintwit and Resolve Asset Management, but just you want to emphasize preparation over prediction in the construction of your portfolio. So for me, I have a long time horizon for these funds. So I want to have, and I'm also a big believer, you know, back to my Boglehead days of being a stocks for the long run type of person. So I want to have an equity bias in the portfolio. And based on what I've learned from reading people like yourself, people like uh, Tobias Carlisle, people like Wes Gray, I want to have a value tilt within my equity allocation. So I've allocated to funds that have, that express that both the equity beta that I'm looking for and also the value tilt that I'm looking for. So my primary equity allocations are my largest sole equity allocation is the ETF AVGE. It's by Avantis. And it's essentially an ETF fund of ETFs. 
I was going to, I could have probably put that together myself, but it's kind of like, it's almost the equivalent, the Vanguard VT equivalent from Avantis, where it's a all world globally diversified equity fund with a, a value tilt. So that kind of accomplishes what I'm looking for there. Yeah. I mean, why not? If they're offering a single vehicle that combines all of those funds, that's way easier than just doing, trying to combine and rebalance all those yourself. I, I'd rather have the, I'd rather do something like that as well. Exactly. And it's, I think, reasonably priced and one-stop shop and I can, I can knock that out. So that's that. Yeah. So for that fund, what are like the components within it? Is it like all of Avantis's small cap value tilts or like what strategies are within that fund? Yeah, that's primarily it. It's 70-30 US to international currently. And it's really just, it's everything. It's across market cap size. And so large to small, international, US. And yeah, it's primarily the value funds that Avantis is really well known for. If you so, yeah, if you open up the hood of the portfolio, it's it's all, you know, US large cap value, US small cap value, international, a small EM allocation, and also has a limited exposure to, they have a REIT fund and it has a limited exposure within the fund to REITs too. So I think it really hits all bases. And yeah, it's kind of perfect for what I was looking for. Very cool. Yeah. And then to kind of round out what I was mentioning on the equity piece, I really love the work of Alpha Architect and Wes Gray. I think they've done so much to, I mean, their mission is empower investors through education. And you know I love their books and everything. So I wanted to have skin in the game with them. So I hold a roughly 10% allocation to their two concentrated value funds. And that's IVAL and QVAL. Each of them have 50 stocks within. They're really kind of more of a deep value expression. And I was a little hesitant at first to, to go in on them. But you know, over time, I just built that conviction in Alpha Architect and, and team to make that allocation. And I've been, I've been happy with it. And I also kind of think that Right. Not that I can predict these things, but I think if I was a betting man, I have a feeling value is going to have a solid decade coming up just because of how badly it's been disrespected in the last 10 years. So we we will see. Yeah, they do great work over there at Alpha Architect. That book, Quantitative Value, was a huge influence on me. Tobias Carlyle, he was also involved in writing that. But yeah, it's I think it's a really sound approach. And I like how the book goes through and breaks it all down by financial quality metrics, by valuation metrics that they want to use, how they're weeding out frauds. Like It definitely seems like a very robust approach. And then they have those two funds that apply it in the US and internationally. So yeah, I'm, I'm also a huge fan of their work and I think it those approaches make a lot of sense. Yeah, totally agree. And I think I've heard Wes say this before on different podcasts, but for those people that just have a normal market weight exposure to say, you know, global equities, instead of pursuing value through kind of a diluted, say like an iShares global value fund or something, they can add a small allocation to their value funds because they're so deeply concentrated in the factor that it would provide almost a, a superior exposure. So yeah, that's that's what I was looking for with, with those two funds. And I'm, I'm happy with how they performed. There's a ton of work being put out by AQR and, and Tobias on, on the value spread. <laughs> so you know, if, if there's any time that this is going to 
come roaring back. Hopefully, hopefully it's soon. But uh, regardless, I'm happy with those holdings. Cool. And you also own something called BLNDX, the Standpoint Multi-Asset Fund. So you want to talk a little bit about that one? Absolutely. Yeah. That's my that's my largest allocation. It's roughly a third of my total portfolio. It's run by Standpoint. The uh, investment officer on that is is Eric Crittenden. And he's, I think, one of my favorite investors. Meb Favors have had him on a show a few times. And his real belief is in right, he's also kind of a, a stocks for the long run guy, but he's also a, a trend follower. And he really emphasizes simplicity and durability in the construction of his portfolio. So what Lendex is, if you have a dollar, say, invested in the fund, 50 cents of that dollar is going to go into global equities, just market cap weighted, simple global equities. Like you can call that, say, VT, something similar to that. And then the other 50 cents is going to be used to support a really robust trend following program. So obviously they use futures to implement that. And his thought is that managed futures trend following program is really the ultimate diversifier to equities. And he's, you know, he has a computer science programming background. He's uh, really run this through all sorts of economic environments. AQR has a great paper on trend following, which I, uh, it's called a hundred years of, of trend following, I believe. And over time, I've really become convinced that trend following is the perfect complement to buy and hold equities. And that's exactly what this portfolio does. So if you look at its performance since its inception, and I think it's early 2020 was the, or late 2019 was the inception of the fund. It's really performed tremendously. It's been defensive during the times that it's needed to be. So, you know, the major mark 2020 sell-off, Last year, it you know it was slightly up, and then when equities have gripped higher, it's been able to essentially match equities. So I think it's a really kind of robust all-weather solution, and you know it's I think just the pairing and the composition of the portfolio is really exactly what I'm what I'm looking for. Gotcha. So how do you think about trend following? Like, why do you think that that approach works to reduce risk? Because theoretically. You know, it shouldn't like it's there's like not a lot of evidence that technical analysis works and it seems like kind of technical analysis light. So why do you think it works? And I know there's robust evidence that trend following works, but why do you think why do you think it works and why are you comfortable allocating to it? I think that it so he would say that I think it's an ultimate question. And I actually funny enough, I actually reached out to standpoint about that. Very, I wanted to hear their their side on it and they provided a few ideas, but ultimately no one, the answer is that nobody knows. To me, the thing that makes most sense is that you're exploiting human behavior. And I think that that is probably the most, if there's any theme that I think you could could bet on for the long run, I think it's that humans are going to probably act the same, uh, probably forever. So they're going to be fearful. They're going to be greedy. They're going to and those sorts of behaviors are going to create trends in markets that can be exploited, but you need to do it in a diversified fashion. So the way Blendex does it, they do it across currencies, commodities, rates, et cetera, also equities. But I just think that there's no doubt that in periods of stress, especially these trends emerge, which is why managed futures or trend following is often billed as crisis alpha 
it has tended to have these characteristics that during moments of major market stress, it's performed well. To me, that's the, the thing that makes most sense. But you know, the team at Standpoint has said in the past that futures traders are providing, essentially providing liquidity to non-financially incented actors in futures markets. So there are people like commercial hedgers that are acting in futures markets without the incentive to necessarily make a profit. They're just there to, to hedge out whatever inherent business risk they have. And that providing liquidity to those people is a form of risk transfer, and that would warrant a premium. So that's another idea that they have as to why trend following works. But I'm more so in the camp that you know you're you're exploiting behavior of, of humans. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a big part of it is on more on the fear side of the equation, where you know when you have one of these big drawdowns, like a big one that lasts for years, usually it's trending down the whole time. So I guess a big part of it is that you're avoiding those ultra fearful markets and you're kind of staying out of it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I think what's so great about trend following is that it has the flexibility to go long. And sh- I mean, you know, trend is implemented differently by different managers, but you generally have the ability to go long and short. And it also has tended to perform quite well during inflationary environments, right? And I think inflationary environments are the environments that most portfolios would struggle in the most because both stocks and bonds are not biased to perform well during a period of meaningful inflation or inflation volatility. Yeah. So a trend following program can go short bonds and and long commodities in those environments and it'll perform generally quite well because those trends tend to emerge during inflationary periods. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So we could also get into the managed future side of things. So you have some managed futures in BLNDX, and then you have some managed futures in KMLM. So do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your feelings about managed futures? You know, it's interesting. I think people say managed futures, and the way that I see it is you know, they're implementing these managers in particular, KMLM and, and Beyond the Act, they are implementing managed futures in a, a pure price trend following sort of way. So KMLM goes long and short, currencies, commodities, et cetera, relative to a moving average. And it's very similar to what's occurring inside of, it's similar, but, but different to what's occurring inside of Blendex. And essentially what I was looking to create, right? I was considering putting you know, almost two thirds of my portfolio in Blendex because of how much I believe in the concept. But I thought that might not be be prudent. That might be taking a little bit too excessive single manager risk. So what I looked to create with AVGE and KMLM pairing them in almost equal proportion was to create that similar return profile as Blendex. And when you run kind of back tests on it, they track very closely. And that's because they're doing very similar things. So essentially, I was just looking to create blend exit with alternate funds so that I wasn't taking too much exposure to one manager. Gotcha. That makes sense. And you also own UPAR, which is a risk parity ETF, which tries to be kind of like a one-stop shop. So you want to talk a little bit about UPAR? Yeah, absolutely. I really like UPAR. So risk parity, kind of doubling back on my comments about how I really learned a ton from reading the work of Bridgewater and Ray Dalio. 
UPAR has 168% notional exposure at the portfolio level. They use futures contracts inside of it. And essentially, it's trying to be diversified across economic environments. So they hold you know, long-dated treasuries, long-dated tips. They hold global stocks. They hold gold. And generally, in, in most risk parity implementations, you would think they would hold commodities. But this manager tends to hold commodity-linked equities which I know a lot of people on Twitter have take issue with, but I really like the manager, Alex Shahidi. He wrote two great books about risk parity. And I really like how the portfolio is constructed. I actually think that UPAR, probably on a standalone basis, because of the leverage and because how balanced the portfolio is, will probably outperform global stocks on a standalone basis over a, you know, over a significant period of time, over a full you know, market cycle or multiple market cycles. But I think it also serves to diversify the portfolio. So the way that they've constructed it is they're looking to match or exceed the return of global equities with similar levels of, of volatility. The issue with UPAR though is that they do hold a lot of bonds. So, you know, in an environment like last year, for example, risk parity really or this implementation of risk parity really got hurt and it was down bad. It was down roughly 30%, give or take. But you know, that's to be expected in, you know, with how this portfolio is constructed. But I still am a full believer in the risk parity as a concept and this sort of implementation of it. Well, it's a pretty interesting fund. I know that it's almost like something that you would see out of a really high-end hedge fund. So it's kind of cool that they've created an ETF for the rest of us that can achieve some of those things. So that's pretty nice. So you mentioned the drawdown that UPAR had last year. And that was due to a year where stocks and bonds basically got crushed at the same time. So does that make you doubt the risk parity approach at all? Or do you think of that as something that kind of is just par for the course and it happens every once in a while? You know, I think that that's kind of a risk that is, you know, I mean, when the risk-free rate increases, you know, the level that it did, all assets are going to be be hurt, right? And it's really hard to hide out in that sort of an environment. There's really no place where you're going to find perfect safe haven. I mean, last year, unless you're maybe in, in what, like energy or unless you were in trend following last year, trend following CTAs really, really crushed it. Maybe some hedge funds did all right, but most people really got hurt last year. And it's just simply put, it's a bad environment for all assets. When cash is one of the top performing assets, it's going to be tough. So no, I don't I don't lose any conviction. I think that's just kind of a part and parcel. That's you know, you're that's just part of the game, you know. That is what it is. Yeah, Harry Brown actually talked about that kind of environment. He called it a hard money recession and his point was mm. they only tend to last like 6 months to 18 months. That was actually his reason for such a large cash allocation. So and that, and I mean it totally makes sense if cash was the, you know, was the the top performing asset the capital markets just wouldn't work. No one would be incented to invest. You know, just gotcha. Yeah. So two other funds you own. You also own the Pimco mm -hmm. Stocks Plus Long Duration Fund. Do so you want to tell us a little bit about that fund? Absolutely. So I own two of them, PSLDX and PEFIX. Those are held in tax advantaged accounts. They're not very tax efficient, but essentially PSLDX is just provides two hundred percent notional exposure to 
100% exposure to the S&P 500 and then 100% exposure to an actively managed long duration bond portfolio. And that's, uh, they hold, you know, MBS, they hold corporate, they hold a, a whole mix of long duration bonds. PFIX is a similar concept in the 200% notional exposure. The equity portion of that exposure is in the RAFI implementation of it's like value EM on the equity side and on the, the actively managed bond side, it has less duration than PSLDX. I really like both of those funds. I think they're both reasonably priced relative to the, the notional exposure that they provide. And yeah, I think over the longer term, I personally want that leverage that it provides the portfolio. And you can see the benefits of the leverage in the performance of both funds since their inception. They've been around since the late 2000s. And then you can also see how the funds can get hurt in environments like last year. Like PSLDX got absolutely destroyed last year. Uh, I think it was down about 50%. But I mean, of course it was, you know, it holds the S&P 500 and it holds long duration bonds, which both got, both got banged up. So that's just the, again, it's the nature of the game. And that's why you want to be diversified across, you know, assets and strategies that can perform well in that environment and also some that'll get hurt. You can't time it. It just, it is what it is. That's how, that's how I view it. Cool. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. And then last but not least, you own a single stock. You own Meta. So I'm also long that. Why do you have an allocation to Meta? Yeah, I saw that you were you were long Meta. So I was happy to <laughs> happy to see that. And this just comes back to, you know, I, I love investing. I, I take it seriously. I don't think that I have any particular ability to you know, to select individual securities that are going to outperform over long periods. I, it's not in my skill set, I don't think so. But having said that, I love investing and I love markets and I follow them closely. And during periods of major dislocations, I try to look for really qualitatively for stocks that have been beat up beyond how much they deserve to be to be beat up in my opinion. And just purely from the qualitative side, the sentiment last year got so bad on Meta that I thought that it was just, I thought it was ridiculous. Like, I know that the, the, the financials took, got, took a slight hit last year. And I know that the guide forward for Metaverse spending was absurd. But I also thought that, I think that, that Zuckerberg's probably one of the the smartest guys in, in business, and he has a track record that backs that up. And I also think that people are addicted to the meta ecosystem for good or bad. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. So when I saw it drop last year by in excess of 70%, I was like, this, this just cannot be. It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. And despite the fact that they committed to that spend for the metaverse, it's just a verbal commitment. It doesn't mean that Zuckerberg can't change his mind. And and then, you know, next thing you know, the year of efficiency for Meta is upon us and the stock is, you know, it's trading at like two and a half times what it was at its low last year. So I bought it around 100. I repurchased again at around 120. So my cost basis in the stock is around 110 or 111 in that, that neighborhood. And now I have to think through the process of, of how do I re-underwrite the name 
and determine how to exit the position, which is, of course, always the most difficult part of investing, I think is, in my opinion, is sizing it and exiting. And I'd love to kind of pick your brain on on that. But I had such conviction that the name was going to come back. I'm disappointed in myself that I didn't size it up more than I did. But I try not to to get too willy-nilly with <laughs> how I size these individual stock picks. But yeah, no, I had this great conviction in the name and boom, you know, it's it's back to where where kind of I expected it to be. So what do you think about Meta? When did you enter that that position? So I moved too early, but I entered after that first big drop that you had in like February and March. And then I bought some more summer 2022. My average cost, I have to take a look, but it's probably something like 180 bucks. And now it's like 280 bucks. And I just held through the whole ride. I agree. Last year, it looked like just a fat pitch. Like you had a um, stock that got down such a high quality company. It got down to, I think at the lows, it was sub you know, a 10x EV EBIT yield, which is, I consider deep value. So you had a really high quality company in a deep value bucket. When you got away from the headlines and you looked at the actual results, the financial results weren't terrible. Yeah, they were spent, the capital expenditures were going way up because of the metaverse spend. But if you kind of, I looked at it this way, like say the metaverse is just setting money on fire. Well, okay, it's still like a really great business, even if they're setting all those billions of dollars on fire every year. And then you also have the optionality that it might work. Like he might be, he might be right. I have no idea. So there was that. And then another thing I looked at was the daily users and the time that they were spending on the website, which Meta is regularly publishing. And you just see that's just steadily increasing. That the number of daily users and the time they're spending on the site is steadily going up. There were concerns about TikTok. Don't think that they were really valid. I don't think that TikTok is really stealing a lot of eyeballs from the Meta suite of products. And then on top of that, I mean, you have just kind of these macro concerns about advertising spend, but I don't think... So yeah, advertising spend will go down in a recession, but I'm willing to look out beyond a recession and say like, well, what's the long-term view on advertising spending? And it's probably going to go up. And I think advertising spending, the dynamic, like the long-term macro dynamic that's going on there is you're having that go away from traditional media like magazines and newspapers, and it's going more towards companies like Google and, and Meta. So that was my thinking for going long. And that made a lot of sense, I think. And then now what's happening is it's definitely had a huge rally. I need to think through what to do there. You know, there's a few different schools of thought. There's uh, the people who say that you should just coffee can things and never sell. (laughs) I'm not totally on that side of the argument. I do think there's a lot of evidence that shows it works. Like there's some portfolios where people will just form like randomly constructed portfolios of like 30 stocks. And then you'll see they just coffee can it, hold it for 30 years. And it actually works out really well. And one stock winds up being, you know, 50% of the portfolio or something. Uh, my point of view is I tend to, I'll hold on to things if I think they're still at a reasonable valuation. I'm going to trim it when it gets high. Right now it's starting to get high again. I need to take some time and think through that. I like to spend some time and think through any decisions I make on that front. So I might be trimming it a little bit in the future, but uh, yeah, it's, I think it's worked out pretty well. It's not at an absurd valuation yet, but I could see it kind of getting there. I'm very much in the same boat. I'll definitely be following your work on as you, you kind of re-underwrite Meta. But it's interesting, as I was following Meta, I was just like 
I was looking at all the similar data that you were, and I just thought to myself, I think it's just a, it's just a pure, it's a sentiment driven sell-off on this thing that's unrelated to the fundamentals. And I last, it was like maybe last March or last spring sometime, I went to Peru and I hiked Machu Picchu and I went as part of this tour group that employs local Peruvians and they, you know, they help like they help you carry water and like various things throughout the the trail. And every break that we were on with the Peruvian locals that were were helping us, they were on WhatsApp. They were all on Instagram. They were all on Facebook. You, you could look at they're all looking down at their phones and they're on one of the, you know, one of the platforms. And I was like, man, this is this is a sign. And you kind of under, you underestimate it because Facebook has such a bad rap in the United States sometimes. But yeah, it has truly global reach and, and just global network effect. So that was one of the primary things where I was like, oh, man, this company is really, it's getting overly beaten up. Yeah, that's that sounds like a really cool trip that you went on. Yeah, and that's that's true. You see it expanding internationally. Even in the United States, there is this stigma against it where people are basically acknowledging social media is bad for you. And then a lot of people are saying like, oh, I never go on Facebook. But then when you look at the data, Facebook seems like it's doing great. And I kind of liken it to fast food. Like everybody I know is like, oh, I rarely eat fast food. But every time I drive by McDonald's, the line is full. So I think some people are lying. (laughs) Yeah, I think we have such a penchant to like, it's all about the lies we tell our, like we have such a penchant to lie to ourselves. Like everyone knows, you know, just to your point, everyone knows soda is bad, but, you know, Coca-Cola has done quite well by pushing out, you know, like the worst thing possible that people could be putting inside of themselves. But hey, you know, it's like, it's, it's what it's, everyone has their own individual choices. So I'm sure Coca-Cola will continue to kick along. And uh, I have a feeling Meta will do the same, though. I doesn't make me necessarily feel great. I think social media is a great, has some great things and also has some really dark sides to it. And it's hard to really net out where if it's a net positive or net negative, I'm not, I would assume it's a positive, but there's definitely some dark side to it though. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. It's tough. A hundred percent. There's definitely some bad effects on our society. I think from people kind of moving away from more traditional media sources and they're getting all of their news from their social media feed from people who are all agree with them. Some of them might be manipulating them and then they're never seeing like the other side of the argument. And I have friends on both sides of the fence, liberals, conservatives. And basically what I see is all of them are getting more extreme in their points of view. And I think it's because all the information that they're getting exposed to is via social media networks and it's all extreme and it's all designed to get a reaction out of them. And I think it's bad for society. I think we were better off when people just you know, watch Walter Cronkite at night and read a newspaper. But hey, you know, that's the world we live in and you have to invest for the world that exists and not the one you wish exists. Yeah. How are you thinking about like, what is a fair, like when would meta to you exceed a point at which, you know, become too expensive where you think you'd need to exit that position? That's a tough question. I think if you, what I usually do is I look at a combination of things. So I look at kind of the absolute yield on it. So Mm -hmm. I think for a really high quality company, when your risk-free rate is basically 3.5%, if you can buy a growing business with a moat at say a 5% free cash yield, 
that's probably decent on absolute terms. The other thing I look at is long-term trending in uh, price to sales and price to book for the stock itself. So like, what does this typically trade at? And I'd okay. have to see it maybe get above that to sell it. I haven't looked at it recently, looked at those metrics, but I think it's around 25X EVD a bit. Yeah. So it's not crazy yet, but I'd, I'd have to look at price sales and, and price to book and look at that 20-year trending and see where it's at as far as that goes. I might just trim it after the run of time, but yeah, like I said, no decisions yet. I usually like to think about these things over a few weeks rather than just make a gut decision. Yeah, I'm the same way. I was thinking about the coffee can thing. And, but I, you know, I read this study. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, I think it's the Besson Binder study that, you know, since like the late 20s, 4% of stocks account for the entirety of the gain of the market. And the rest of the stocks are like equivalent to the return on, on T-bills, <laughs> something like that. So I was like, you know, is it prudent to coffee can something when that's been the history of the market? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this is a different story. I, I don't know. I'm not sure if you've seen that study, but it's shocking. Yeah. So there's a few things about that. So number one, I think a lot of that might be a product of just market cap weighting. So you're going to have a small number of stocks drive the returns of an index because the index is basically always weighted towards some big players. Um, so sure. that's yeah. one side of it. I think the other side of it is if you look at like Dow stocks, like just as one example, I've done some back tests where I've said like, what if you took the Dow in 1980 and equally weighted the 30 stocks and that works out okay. Like it works out better than it theoretically should. There's also a fund, I think it's now a Voya fund where they basically coffee canned portfolio of 30 of the biggest companies in the 1930s. And that has actually like beaten the market for the long run. <laughs> so I think when you're talking about coffee canning, I wouldn't go ahead and coffee can a microcap, like some random company. But I think when you're dealing with a business that has a reasonable moat, and that's probably most of, for instance, like Dow stocks, most of the big large cap names that you would run through, like say you were to construct a portfolio out of you know, Exxon, Berkshire Hathaway, Coca-Cola, maybe throw in Google and Meta, that would probably be, in my opinion, a safer thing to coffee can. I don't think you can just coffee can random stocks, but I do think there are companies out there where you can reasonably say, yeah, this business is probably going to do okay over the next 20 years. And the other side of that is kind of Charlie Munger's argument, where if you hold the stock long enough, you'll actually derive the returns from the business. So if you look at like the returns on invested capital over that 20 year period of time, if something is compounding their invested capital at like, you know, a 15, 20% CAGR over 20 years, the longer you go out, the initial price you paid almost doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, that's interesting. Love monger. Can't believe those guys are still still kicking around. <laughs> now, yeah, I'm not I'm like a all never sell coffee canning maximalist. Like I definitely think you want to trim positions and you can trim around that. But that's another approach. You know, you could say, well, I still own this business, but I'm going to trim it back because the valuation's gotten a little stretched. There's a lot of great investors who did things like that. Like pretty good example is Lou Simpson. Like for instance, mm -hmm. his big holding was Nike when he was running money for uh, Geico. 
And he okay. would trade around that. Like if Nike got too expensive, he'd trim it. If it got cheap, he'd add to it. But he never like actually sold out of the business. That's that's another kind of uh, middle road that you can pursue there. Yeah, I think I like that. Because I, I definitely like to, I like to look for kind of the my qualitative assessment of sentiment. And I think Twitter is a great place where you can get a feel for sentiment. Yes, yeah, so 100%. And I like to, you know, once a company's kind of back in the good graces of everybody, <laughs> I'm kind of like, you know, I want to get back to finding something that is totally hated and try to see if uh, I could have a uh, variant view on, on what's going on there. So, so, yeah. Yeah. Twitter sentiment is great to fade. And actually with Meta, when I first bought it, I bought it in like March 2022 and I posted about it. Everybody loved it. <laughs> and that should have been the first sign to me that, yeah, the, the sell is probably over. <laughs> then when I was tweeting about it in like fourth quarter, like all the comments I got were pretty much like, what is wrong with you? This is a stupid investment. And that was the sign that I should probably go huge <laughs> position. Yeah, always fade Twitter sentiment. It's almost always wrong. And it's definitely basically like you're just reading. If you want to know what Mr. Market thinks about something, Post about it on Twitter and you'll get some, you'll get, you'll get a sense of it. Yeah, for sure. I will say though, I, I really love, I'm fairly new to Twitter. I think I've been on it almost, on, you know, maybe almost a year, maybe a little less now. And I just, I love how I've been trying to be very careful about making my feed very curated towards what I'm looking to learn about and, and looking into people I'm looking to interact with. But you know, I've really loved people that are open to learn on the, the retail level and even professionals that are just so generous with their time in answering questions and, and all of that. I've, I've, I've really learned a lot from it and, and been you know, exposed to a lot of perspectives that I hadn't been exposed to, to prior for sure. And it's been, it's been a great experience on there. Totally. I agree. Twitter is amazing in that sense where you, you can network, you can meet with people like we're having this conversation right now because of Twitter and that's that's awesome and I've definitely met a lot of really cool people on Twitter and I've I've learned a lot from them and it's been good for me like I think when I first got onto Twitter I had like a very kind of set view of the world and it's definitely exposed me to some other perspectives and other ideas and like you mentioned it's also cool that you can go in there and you can talk to like you know, giants of finance and you can just talk to them like anybody else. Like you can go in there and actually like talk to Cliff Asnes or Jim O'Shaughnessy and like, <laughs> yeah. it's amazing. Like where, where else can you do something like that? Yeah. It's like, I'm trying to imagine like Bill Ackman running billions <laughs> of dollars yet. He's like on his iPhone cranking out a, you know, a, a short novel about, <laughs> you know, like health policy or something like what, what is going on? But it's just so cool to see it in, in real time. But I do think sometimes Twitter, I have to check myself from like a behavioral perspective, because on the investing side, people have so many great ideas. And there's so many new funds that come out, and, and you know, and you're constantly exposed to this information, that I sometimes think it gives me that like, oh, should I act? Should I do something? And in reality, I'm like, you know, I'm going to maybe bookmark that and I'll come back to it in a month and a half. And I'm if it's still extremely interesting, then I'll do some work on it. But but yeah, it's almost the the drip of, of information from such smart people can be enticing sometimes in, in a bad way. 
Yeah, 100%. A good behavior tool that I've used is to just not have it on my phone. Like I have I have a laptop in my living room that Twitter's on and then I don't have it on my like actual desktop that I work on. I don't have it on my phone. I think that's helped a bit where I like I'll set aside an hour or two and be like, "Okay, I will allow myself to go into Twitter and then after that it's over." Yeah, that's no, that's that's great. That's that's a lot of discipline. Maybe one day I'll find the discipline <laughs> to implement that also. <laughs> Yeah, it is funny when I first deleted it on my phone. There's like this muscle memory of clicking on the app that really showed me how addicted to it I was because I would routinely open up my phone and click on the click on that app and it wasn't there. Right? Isn't that so disturbing? <laughs> I used to have Instagram. I still technically have the account, but I've removed it from my phone because I felt that I wasn't really getting anything from it. Whereas Twitter, I actually find that I'm constantly learning things, but Instagram is just mindless to me. And so I deleted it, but I, same experience. I found like the ghost, like my thumb is just going to the location. Like, man, that's, that's not great. So, yeah. Um, so you're currently doing an MBA at Georgetown. What are your professional ambitions? So you've put together this all weather portfolio. You've put that out there publicly. You have the Substack, and you're putting out a lot of great work. What are your plans and ambitions going forward? I just graduated from, from Georgetown, um, doing my MBA there. And now I've moved down to Florida. I've accepted a role to work in in private banking. So I'll be I will be in the, the world of, of finance. Oh cool. And yeah, I just look to continue to learn and hopefully implement some of the things that I've learned on a personal level for others to help them achieve their goals and, and what they're looking for. So yeah, that's that's those are my plans kind of moving forward and uh yeah, I've, you know, just, just got done unpacking actually not, not super long ago and enjoying uh, the last month or so before I, I begin work. So nice, nice. You picked a nice place to live there. Nice and warm. Yeah. You know, I feel like, uh, I used to live in, in Tampa. Tampa is where I live. You know, I, I just loved it. I love the ability to live outside year round pro sports teams, no income tax, great weather, the beaches, so personally, it was a good fit for my, for my interests and my my life. So, so yeah, it's it's been great. Highly recommend to anybody that is considering uh, moving or visiting Florida. Nice. What do you have anything that you wanted to add to this conversation that we maybe didn't touch on? Uh, not you know not necessarily. Just uh, I think that for those that are interested in trend following, because I think that's probably my most non consensus take, you know, I, I think uh, most people are, you know, see the value of, uh, of having a value tilt in your in your equity allocation and, and all that stuff. But uh, there's some great work put out by whether it's it's Corey Hofstein, or by AQR, it's a 100 years of, of trend following, you can Google that by AQR and, and give it a read. And it's persistence over time and across asset classes particularly during periods of that are bad for equities, I think it's truly the ultimate diversifying strategy. And its ability to, to go across asset classes gives you that, that really holistic diversifier to equity. So I, I would recommend that people check that piece out at least. They provide some very, you know, it's great research by AQR, you know, they're the best. And uh, I, th I think people would find it interesting. That's about it. Awesome. And uh, what are the best ways to reach you, learn about you, read your content? Yeah, absolutely. I, I write about twice a week, just short stuff on Substack at 
top of mind. And also the other social media I'm on is, is LinkedIn. And you can just, you can find me there if you're interested in connecting at just Jack Burns, my name. So, well, thank you. And uh, thank you for your time and coming on today. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a, a really fun conversation. I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.